Hey Moth family, save the date for the Moth main stage on Saturday, February 27th at 7.30 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Join us and host Jonathan Ames for an evening of stories as five storytellers take the virtual stage and share a true personal tale from their life. Stories of glory and defeat, taunting fate, laughing in the face of danger, and the moments that forever changed the course. Buy tickets now at themoth.org slash virtual mainstage. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Sarah Austin Janess from The Moth, and I'll be your host this time. At The Moth, people tell true, personal, spellbinding stories on stage without notes, in front of crowds of strangers who've come to listen. Each Moth is a one-time-only event and features storytellers who may never be paired together again. We take the best stories from these nights and we share them here with you. The Moth began in New York City, but these days we produce storytelling shows all across the country. And the three stories you'll hear in this show were told in Los Angeles, Durham, North Carolina, and Cambridge, Massachusetts. Our first storyteller this hour is Cindy Shupak. Cindy told this story at a Moth event in Los Angeles at UCLA Live in Royce Hall. The theme that night was Saints and Sinners. Here's Cindy, live at the Moth. I was finally getting married. That's what I kept telling people. I didn't say I was finally getting married again because bringing up a first marriage during the planning of a second seemed to be a major buzzkill for everyone involved. I think this is because it reminds the bride and groom at a time when their biggest worry should be spun sugar versus buttercream that love does not always conquer all. And I didn't want to hang that cloud over my fiance Ian because this was his first wedding a term I didn't like for him either because it implied he might have a second. <laughs> so we tried not to talk about first or second anythings until our first meeting with the rabbi. Ian called our rabbi the hot rabbi because she was young and hip and hot. I didn't mind him calling her hot. I found it reassuring because it was yet another indication that Ian was not gay. The one wedding detail I was certain of was that I did not want to publicly declare my love for someone in front of 200 of my closest friends and family, only to have that someone two years later realize they were gay. Again. Yes. As you have gathered in a slow ripple. Um, that is what happened the first time around, and that is what I told the rabbi when she asked if either of us had been married before. She nodded and made a note. She was appropriately unfazed. I mean, what woman today doesn't have a guy who turned out to be gay story? <laughs> Admittedly, it's a somewhat smaller, stupider subset that has a husband who turned out to be gay story. <laughs> but the point is, she was on to her next question. She asked if he was Jewish. This seemed like a moot point to me, but I said, yes, my first husband, Sam, was Jewish. Um, I remember how excited my parents were that I was marrying a Jewish doctor. It was like winning the Jewish lottery until he turned out to be gay. <laughs> and uh, so it was like 
nice but not essential that Ian was Jewish as well. Ian was a tattooed lawyer, poet, chef who proposed to me on a beach at sunset riding a white horse in rented armor dressed as a knight. <laughs> Which I know sounds like it could be gay, but it wasn't. <laughs> in his defense. So, you know, the fact that he was Jewish was like the least remarkable thing about him. The hot rabbi then said, did you get a get? Now, I had heard of a get. I knew it was some kind of Jewish divorce certificate, but it was like the last thing on my to-do list. It seemed much less urgent than figuring out what to do with all the wedding photos and about as exciting as calling the credit card companies to say that I had to change my name back to Shupak. So um, I remember... Also, my non-Jewish divorce was so complicated because I was trying to do it myself with this, no kidding, a do-your-own-divorce workbook that is from No Low Press. And um, this gay production assistant was helping me with it. And I mentioned the gay production assistant because at that time in my life, when my marriage was ending for the most irreconcilable of differences 10 years ago, it seemed like everyone in the world was gay. It wasn't just Sam, it was also, after our wedding, two of his groomsmen, and in a very unexpected twist, one of my bridesmaids. <laughs> so, and um, and I, was, I was tinkering with stand-up comedy at the time, and um, on stage I was only doing jokes like why a clerk at the 99 cent store would shout, price check, um, that was my big... <laughs> Could I, could I, that was really all I had, though. And, um, <laughs> but off stage, I was talking to my friend Rob about everything else. And Rob was the first person who tried to make me laugh about the fact that my husband at the time had come out. And he was like endlessly fascinated by my story. How did he know? How did he tell you? As he told his parents. And then a year later, Rob came out. <laughs> and then I was telling that story at a party to this guy I thought was flirting with me, and then I saw a ring and realized he was married to a man, and he, never, he said he'd never considered himself gay, but then he went on a vacation and fell in love with this guy. And then I told that story to the host of the party, who said he actually considered himself bi, which I didn't know, and he said that was really hard for anyone to understand. Like, for example, would I date someone who was bisexual? And when I realized it wasn't rhetorical, I was like, no, thank you, not right now. And then I told that story to a friend I knew was straight, and he said he actually was, he had recently come out to his stunned Beverly Hills parents, and he had gotten a couple gay relationships under his belt, so to speak. And, um, <laughs> and then he decided he wasn't gay, and so he is now married to a woman who had recently considered herself a lesbian. So I was thinking about how exciting it was that I could tell my story without someone coming out of the closet to me, when um, I realized the rabbi, the hot rabbi, was still talking, and she said that she thought I should get a get, and that technically Ian and I didn't need a get in order to get married, but under Jewish law, if we didn't get one, our children someday would basically be considered bastards. Now, I was 40 when I was getting married. I knew they would be miracles of science, but <laughs> bastards. So... <laughs> and she also thought it would be good closure for me. Now, it sounded like the opposite of closure. It sounded like we would have to reopen the doors of communication that we had finally, and I would say mercifully, shut. You know, we, we were friends. It just seemed easier to wish each other well as friends from afar. I think, 
I was a little resentful that he had a husband and kids before I did. And um, he was resentful that I was making more writing sitcoms and he was making Saving Lives. So we just agreed to have or have not in private. Um, but, the, and also, to be honest, at that time, I mean, this is all honest, here I am for all of you. Um, at that time, it was hard. It was a failed marriage. It was, it was, I empathized with what he was going through, but I felt annoyed that I had to go through it with him. And um, I just was happy to forget it as I was launching into my new life with my new husband, hopefully my last husband. And um, I felt I was done with closure. And I guess if you say you're done with closure, then maybe you're not, but I, I felt <laughs> I was. But I didn't want my kids to be bastards. So I called Sam, and he was a little surprised to hear from me and kind of dubious about what I was asking. But I assured him I would do all the research, find this Orthodox rabbi we had to find, and um, pay the money, and go to LA. And all he had to do is show up. And he said maybe I could meet his husband and kids, and we could have a get together. <laughs> And I thought, it, maybe it would be good closure after all. So when we met outside this industrial building that was where this rabbi worked, who I'd found online, there's a way to do this online. <laughs> um, it, was, it was, we were buzzing for him, and we were making small talk, like, you look good, you too, how are your parents? And then we realized no one was answering the buzzing. So we called the number we had, which was the rabbi's home number, and he answered. And there was confusion about the time, and he said we'd have to reschedule. And I said, it took 10 years to make this appointment, so we're doing it today. And he said he'd have to find two witnesses, so give him an hour. And it was then that Sam said his husband and kids were nearby, and we could have our get-together now. It was um, kind of too late for lunch and too early for dinner, which seemed emblematic of our relationship. <laughs> and, but we went to this cafe, and it's not often a girl gets to have a meal with the guy she thought she'd have kids with and the guy he had kids with and the kids, but they were this pretty perfect family without me, and I had met his husband years earlier at a Christmas party, and I remember thinking he was really smart and handsome and witty. I liked him immediately, and it might have been inaccurate, but I found it comforting to think he was the male version of me. And now they had these two gorgeous kids who looked like they walked out of a Baby Gap ad. And as Sam was juggling juice boxes and children's menus, he smiled at me and said, get ready. And finally, the rabbi called. And he said he was ready. He found two witnesses. So we went back to meet him. And he told us the process would take about an hour also. So Sam told his family he'd see him later. And we went into this windowless room with this old rabbi who was bearded and old and two witnesses who were even older, longer beards. And we sat on one, funny, because I was sort of a beard. <laughs> just only occurred to me. <laughs> just occurred to me now. Um, anyway, <laughs> there we were. And we were on one side of the table and they were on the other end. We watched in respectful silence as the rabbi, who was also a scribe, wrote our divorce document in pen and ink in Hebrew. And after what seemed like an eternity, he was only half done, so Sam left to feed the meter. And when Sam left, the rabbi asked the question that had been bothering him since we arrived, clearly. He said, who was that other man who came with you? And 
I wasn't sure the official orthodox stance on homosexuality, so I said, it's Sam's friend. And then he said, and who were the kids? And I didn't like where this was going. I felt, I actually asked, will this affect the get process? And he said no. So I decided to be honest and I said, Sam is gay, that's his husband and those are their kids. And then the two witnesses turned and looked at each other, which was the first sign that they spoke English. And, <laughs> and the rabbi said flatly, I think that's sick. And I said, it's not sick, they're very happy. And then in a very unoriginal attempt at a joke, the rabbi said, which one is the man? And I said, they're both men, they're both very good men. And when Sam came back in the room, I felt ill. I felt like I'd spent $500 and flown cross country and taken Sam to this unmarked warehouse to sit in front of these old holy men who were in judgment of him. And the irony was Sam was the more religious one. He, his husband had converted to Judaism so they could raise their kids Jewish. And I was so angry. I was composing an angry letter in my head to the hot rabbi. I was hoping this wasn't representative of my faith. I felt like we should get out, get, well, the getting was good. <laughs> and, then, and then Sam, the rabbi, told us that the document was ready. And he instructed us to stand and face each other. And as we stood looking at each other, I remember thinking Sam looked handsome. And it was kind of like we were standing on our wedding day. He looked more handsome and happier. And I thought about why he married me all those years ago. And he did love me. But on top of that, he probably thought he couldn't have the kind of family he wanted unless he married a woman. And now he had that family without having to compromise any part of who he was. And I thought about this get process, that what it translates into is the man releases you. I thought about what he gave me all those years ago when he unofficially released me. And yes, I, it was hard being single again all the years, the longing, the heartbreak, but also it led me to the career I had in writing about being single to a job on Sex in the City, to New York, to my lawyer, poet, chef. And I also thought about how this tribunal, this ridiculous judgmental tribunal, is what Sam faces every day, when sometimes when he least expects it, sometimes from family, sometimes from within. And I, um, as he dropped the get into my open palms, which made it legally binding, I was proud of him and proud of us for releasing each other to our proper destinies. Thank you. That was Cindy Shupak. Cindy is an Emmy Award-winning TV writer-producer whose credits include Modern Family, Sex in the City, and Everybody Loves Raymond. She lives with her husband and daughter in Los Angeles. When Cindy left the stage after telling this story, she remembered something about the engagement ring her ex-husband had given her. I left out one part of the story, and that was the wedding ring that my ex had given me. I didn't know what to do with it. I wasn't ready to sell it or reset it, so I had put it in the safe deposit box. And I used to go visit my ring, visit my old married self, and even with no one to witness it, I was aware how pathetic it seemed that I was sitting in a bank cubicle modeling my wedding ring. So when the opportunity came to return it, I kind of jumped at the chance. 
She gave the ring back to Sam and said, with this ring, will you not marry me? And then she said, we had a little moment in the spirit of forgiveness and friendship. Can you tell us the story of how you met Ian? Oddly enough, I met Ian through the moth. So I have a special place in my heart for the moth because I had a main stage story I used to tell, um, which was kind of the preamble to this story, Till Death or Homosexuality Do We Part. And um, But when I wasn't telling a story, I would just go to events. And I went to an event at the Players Club, and I was invited to this guy who had won the last story slam, and he was cute and um, and heterosexual, seemingly. <laughs> Still has proven to be. And he um, he kind of chatted me up and then followed me out that night, and we went and had a drink after, and thus began our romance. That was Ian. He, he used to leave his corporate law job, change clothes in the cab, and go to story slams in the East Village. That was Cindy Shupak. To hear Cindy's first moth story, the prelude to this story of the get, go to our website, themoth.org. Coming up next, the summer of 1966 and a civil rights struggle on a highway in the Mississippi Delta. Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, PRX.org. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Sarah Austin Janesse. The next story is from Salah Udin. He told the story in Durham at the Carolina Theater, and the theme was Between Worlds. A warning, this story has racist language. We felt we should leave it in because it's important to understanding the story and the time. Here's Salah Udin, live at the Moth. This tiny jail cell in Canton, Mississippi, in 1966, had this cold steel slab perpendicular to the wall, posing as a bed. No mattress, no blanket, no pillow, just a cold steel slab, which I stared at from my position sitting on the floor. And I looked to my left, and there was a stinking toilet, which I needed to use anyway. Standing above the toilet, I looked at another smaller steel slab, about eight by 10 inches, riveted into the wall. And I looked at this swollen, disfigured face staring back out at me. Swollen eyes, fat lip, bloody nose. And I asked myself, who could that be? Then clear as a bell, I heard my mother's voice saying, son, please don't go to Mississippi. You see, your father and I are from the South. We came up here to Pittsburgh to get away from the South because we know how mean and evil them white folks down South can be. 
And if you go down there, running your mouth, they will beat you to within an inch of your life. And they might even take your life. Did I listen? No. Mama's warnings were drowned out by the stories that were included in Dr. King's I Have a Dream speech in 1963. As I stood there on the lawn of the Washington Mall in the hot August sun, sweat dripping down my face. I stood there staring up at Dr. King, sometimes looking over his shoulder at this big giant statue of Abe Lincoln, the Emancipator. And Dr. King told us stories of the trials and tribulations of the civil rights movement in the South and the arrests and the beatings and the bombings and the little children of Birmingham who came forward in such large numbers that they filled the jail so bad that they couldn't get anybody else in the jails. And he told of the bravery of the civil rights workers. And he issued a call for support of the civil rights movement. And I said, at that moment, I want to be a freedom rider. I want to join his movement. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about what freedom riders were and what they did, because they lived very dangerous lives. Freedom riders, we took carloads of sharecroppers and farmers up to the county seat every day to the courthouse to register to vote. We would take children to the white, all-white elementary school to desegregate the elementary school. Or we'd take high school students and college students to the all-white lunch counter at the 5 and 10 downtown. And my favorite was taking black worshipers to the all-white church on Sunday morning to pray. We made white folks so angry. Their whole world was being turned upside down. They was mad enough to kill, literally. And they did, many of us. And so it was necessary for freedom riders to have rules of how to stay alive as a freedom rider in Mississippi. One, don't let your car run out of gas. Keep a tank full of gas. Have four good tires on the ground. Keep your car tuned up and your papers straight, your driver's license, your registration. Have everything kept in order. Don't let the Highway Patrol or the Ku Klux Klan catch you broke down on the side of the road. And one more important rule, don't ride with white folks and black folks in the same car. It's a dead giveaway 
that your freedom riders. And especially, don't have a black man behind the wheel with a white woman in the front seat. If a white woman just had to ride in the car with a black man, she had to be in the back seat like driving Miss Daisy. So I was particularly amused by the question that Roberta came from around the corner to ask. Roberta was a white freedom rider from Chicago. She came limping around the corner to ask me to please take her with me to Mount Beulah. Now Mount Beulah is an important weekend retreat for freedom riders. We love Mount Beulah. We needed Mount Beulah. We look forward to the weekend where we can get to the safe haven of Mount Beulah. And Roberta was asking me to take her with me to Mount Beulah. It's about a two-hour drive. Roberta, why don't you ride with some of the white workers? Everybody's gone. You're the last person leaving the Delta going to Mount Beulah. And I've got to get to Mount Beulah. I've got people coming who are going to meet me there. Please take me with you. I often thought back. Why did I decide to let Roberta ride with me? Was it because she begged and pleaded so hard? Was it because she had people coming to meet her? Was it because she refused to insult me by riding in the back seat? I said, hell, insult me. Or was it because she had polio and she walked around on these two crutches and she was willing to leave her home in Chicago to come and make a sacrifice for the movement in Mississippi. And so she took a chance on us. So I figured, well, I guess I'll take a chance on Roberta. Come on, get in the front seat. And we start out for Mount Beulah. It's about to get dark. We're going down Highway 51. Not much traffic. We're driving along. It's getting darker. Traffic is getting a little heavier. And I figured, well, it's the weekend. Traffic's normally heavy. Then as we go a little further, the traffic is getting heavier and it starts to slow down. And I figure maybe there's an accident up ahead. And then I see it. Oh God, the flashing blue lights of the Mississippi Highway Patrol. It's a Mississippi Highway Patrol roadblock. And it's too late to turn around. And by now, the police officers are waving us on, come on through. And they're looking down inside the car and they see me behind the wheel and Roberta sitting beside me. And they're talking on their radios and waving me through. So by the time we get to the roadblock, they pull me off to the side of the road. They pull me out of the car, take me down over a ravine, and they start whipping me 
It seemed like 15, 20 minutes felt like 15 to 20 days. They made my mother's prediction come true. They whipped me to within an inch of my life. I thought I was going to jail when the police officer made me march toward the jailhouse at gunpoint. He made me go past the jail. And the only thing behind the jail was the woods. When I got to the edge of the woods, I slowed down. And he said, move, keep walking. And I started walking into the woods. I'm looking. I can see the traffic lights. 100 feet. 200 feet. Keep walking. 300 feet. I can't see the traffic lights no more. He stopped. I could feel the barrel of his gun against my head. He says, you ain't gonna say Yasser is you nigga. Bang! My head exploded. I dropped down on my knees, blood running down my shirt. And I fell over on the ground. And I said to myself, did he shoot me in the head? Am I dead? Am I dead? Get up, nigga. I didn't shoot you. I just banged you upside the head with the butt of my gun. And it went off. But if you don't get your ass up off that ground, I'm going to shoot you for real. And I got up. Get on back over to the jail. And I started walking back out of the woods. And I'm wondering, why didn't he shoot me? Maybe it was because he could tell that I might have said Yasser if I wasn't so completely wrapped in fear. So we're back in the jailhouse. And I'm looking in this mirror at this swollen, disfigured face. And I say, I don't know why they didn't kill me, but they should have. Because now, I'm committed, I'm clear. I will never stop fighting racism. I will fight racism and injustice for the rest of my life. For the rest of my life, I'm gonna be a freedom rider. Thank you. That was Salah Udin. After four years as a freedom rider, Salah became a community organizer and served on Pittsburgh City Council for 11 years. 
He then led the design and build of Freedom Corner, a staging point for civil rights activities in education. And if that weren't enough, he's also a theater artist. He collaborated with August Wilson for decades. Perhaps you'll hear a story about that from him in a future Moth Radio Hour. To see pictures of Sala from 1966 when he was a freedom rider, go to themoth.org. While you're there, you can send a link to any moth story to your friends and family. Oh, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter at The Moth. Next up, a brand new mother, overwhelmed and overworked, realizes a bigger hurdle is ahead. Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. I'm Sarah Austin Janess, and you're listening to the Moth Radio Hour. Our last storyteller is Rebecca Nesson. Now, full disclosure, Rebecca is the lead software developer at PRX, our radio presenter. But we first met her when she put her name in a hat at a local open mic moth story slam in Cambridge, Massachusetts. We developed this story for a moth event presented by WBUR. The theme was learning curves. A warning, this story describes a medical situation in somewhat graphic terms. Here's Rebecca Nelson. It was when my daughter Nico was five months old that things really started to go downhill for me. She had just started to sleep through the night and I felt like I should be feeling less tired but instead I was just feeling more and more exhausted. And my progress on my dissertation had ground to a complete halt. And I was fat and I had been you know, it's not like I wasn't trying to lose the weight. My husband, Wayne, had gotten me this wee fit, and I would get on it each day, and this little cute animated version of me would tell me, yes, you are getting fatter. <laughs> but worst part of it at all was that Wayne and I were really, really not getting along. We were just fighting about all kinds of things, and just, you know, stupid things. It would be like I dripped water on the floor after I took a shower, or I uh, didn't remember to turn the windshield wipers off when I parked the car. And I just felt like, didn't matter what I did, it was wrong. And I just felt like I was being kicked when I was down. And I was feeling pretty miserable. And over the course of the next two months, it just got worse and worse. I was still feeling really exhausted, and I was still getting fatter. My dissertation was still exactly the same length. And we were fighting almost every single day. And I was just starting to think about escaping. And I would think back to what it was like the summer before Nico was born, and everything was so good. Wayne had just moved back from Chicago. He'd gotten a really great postdoc, and we'd found this, like, 
you know, more or less affordable apartment in a lively part of East Cambridge. And we were so excited to become parents and we were talking about it and planning and just um, feeling, you know, congratulatory to ourselves that when it came to big decisions and, uh, you know, serious perspectives on, on things, we just always seemed to agree and we always had. And now here we were in our kitchen under this way too yellow light and smelling the cloying smell of the laundry detergent of our neighbors coming up from the basement and through our kitchen window. And we were fighting in this really angry stage whisper, again, about something stupid, like why is it that I cannot remember to put the long-handled spoons in the right place in the dishwasher and why don't I care? And it just crossed some kind of a line for me. Um, and I told Wayne that I was leaving. And then I just collapsed in tears on a chair because I knew that it wasn't true. And he knew that it wasn't true. I couldn't leave. I was trapped. I was trapped by my love for my amazing little daughter, Nico. And I was so ashamed of the decision that I had made and of thinking that we were ready to do this, that we were ready to start a family. And now here we were, and we weren't ready, and I couldn't do it. And I went to bed really sad and angry that night. And uh, the next morning, I found out I was pregnant. So as you can imagine, I was pretty devastated. I went through the next two weeks in a uh, sort of like resigned, zombie-ish state, just running over and over in my mind the dismal set of options that I had and thinking about how could I bring another child into this unhappy, unprepared family. And then this one day, this absolutely gorgeous day in September, I happened to have the morning to myself. And so I packed up my laptop and I walked to the 1369 coffee shop in Inman Square. And I sat down in the coffee shop among the whole uh, laptop set that was there. <laughs> and I was feeling pretty good. I was getting some work done and I was actually just feeling pretty normal when I felt something really unnormal start to happen to me. And so I got up and I rushed to the bathroom as fast as I could, but by the time I got there, I was covered. My legs were completely covered in blood. And luckily, I was pretty shocked, so I wasn't really thinking about the magnitude of what had happened. I was just thinking about, you know, oh my god, I'm in this coffee shop bathroom covered in blood, and I don't have a sweatshirt that I can cover up with, I have nothing to clean up. And so I just cleaned myself up as best as I could. I cleaned the bathroom up, and then I kind of like sidled out of the bathroom up to where the espresso machine was, where this girl was working, and I said, um, I'm really sorry, but I think I just had a miscarriage in your bathroom. Can I use your phone? And so five minutes later, I'm walking down Cambridge Street um, to the birth center, and I'm just really aware of all of these people's eyes on me because my pants are soaked in blood. And it is sinking in what has happened. And I'm thinking to myself, but isn't this what you wanted? I mean, hadn't you kind of secretly been hoping for this to happen? And if so, why does it feel so sad and awful? 
So when I get to the birth center, Wayne had rushed to meet me there, and I look at him and I can just see the pain and sadness and worry on his face also. But we just didn't know what to say to each other, and I just couldn't really accept comfort from him. But so this nurse gave me these gigantic double XL green nurse's scrubs to replace my pants and uh, then showed us in to see the midwife. And the midwife um, told us that yes, when you bleed that much, the baby's gone. Um, but that we had this regularly scheduled ultrasound later that afternoon and she wanted us to go so that they could see what was left. So walking home silently uh, with Wayne in these gigantic pants, I just felt so small. Two hours later, we're back and we're waiting for this ultrasound and uh, I'm trying to steal myself for it because it just seems like it's gonna be such a terrible thing to see. And at least the ultrasounds are these like totally indecipherable, indistinct things. So maybe I won't really be able to tell what I'm looking at. But as the image swims into view on the screen in front of me and I'm looking at it, I'm really hesitant to say anything, but I just have to, and I say to the technician, I, I think I see something moving. And she says, yes, that's the baby's heartbeat. It looks like the baby's okay. And oh my God, the feeling of joy just washing over me, and Wayne was crying, and I was just, you know, so surprised at the unexpected result, and also at my unexpected reaction to it. But when you have that kind of bleeding, everything is not okay. So um, the next Monday, we go downtown to the hospital for a special ultrasound, and the doctor checks to make sure that the baby is still okay. And uh, when he tells us that it is, we decide to walk a few blocks into Chinatown and celebrate with some dim sum. And the following Monday, it's the same thing all over again. And over the course of the next seven months, um, we start to have fun. We're eating an obscene amount of shrimp noodles and shumai and starting to enjoy each other's company again and really just starting to feel better. So that by the time that our daughter Charlie was born healthy, seven months later, I knew that it had taken her one gigantic, really scary and shocking event and then seven months of dim sum dates engineered from inside the womb to ensure that she was born into the happy and healthy family that she deserved. And she was. Thanks. That was Rebecca Nesson. When she told this story, her husband was in the front row, cheering her on and supporting her. Rebecca is a computer programmer, urban forager, gardener, reader, home buddy, mom, kid, wife, sister, and lover of doing things from scratch. She lives and has always lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and thinks it's a really special place. 
To share any of the stories you're hearing this hour, go to themoth.org, where you can stream the stories for free and send links to your friends and family. Pitch us your own story at themoth.org. Record it right on our site or call 877-799-MOTH. That's 877-799-6684. The best pitches are developed for moth shows all around the country. Here's a couple of pitches that just came in. My name is Clifton Truman Daniel. I'm Harry S. Truman's oldest grandson. In 1999, my son Wesley came home from school with a book, Sadako and the Thousand Paper Cranes. It's the story of a real little girl, Sadako Sasaki, who survived the bombing of Hiroshima in 1945, only to be diagnosed with radiation-induced leukemia nine years later. In an effort to get well, she followed a Japanese tradition that says if you fold a thousand origami paper cranes, you are granted a wish. Sadako's, of course, was to live. Sadly, though she folded more than a thousand cranes, it didn't work. She died of the leukemia in October of 1955. Several years after I read that story with Wesley, I mentioned the fact that I'd read it to a Japanese journalist who was working on a story on the anniversary of the bombings. And the story, of course, made, it, made its way back to Japan. And in 2004, I had a phone call from Masahiro Sasaki, Sadako's older brother and himself a survivor of Hiroshima. He asked if we might meet someday. And I agreed, but it took us six years. We finally met in New York in 2010 at the World Trade Center Memorial, where Masahiro and his son Yuji had come to donate one of Sadako's last original folded paper cranes to the memorial as a gesture of healing. And at the end of our conversation, Yuji reached into a small plastic box and took out a tiny paper crane and dropped it into my palm. And he said, that is the last crane that my Aunt Sadako folded before she died. Would you consider coming to Hiroshima and Nagasaki? My name is John Baker. My story began on October the 22nd, 2009. I went surfing down south of Houston at a place called Surfside Beach. I've been surfing at that spot for almost 50 years. And on that date, we had a front come through. Uh, it was blowing offshore about 25 miles an hour, and we had six to eight foot surf running that day. About noon, I entered the water, walked out on the, the jetty, and paddled out to an area about 100 yards off the jetty. And that's when things started going bad. Uh, the wind was blowing so strong, it was setting up currents that were blowing me out to sea. And I was out there for about three, three and a half hours before I decided that I, no matter what I did, I wasn't going to be able to get back in. And no matter how hard I tried, I wasn't able to let anybody know that I was in trouble. So around 3.30, 4 o'clock that afternoon, I started paddling south into the Gulf because I was former Coast Guard and I knew that I had less than 12 hours to survive if I didn't get out of the water and get, get warm. The water temperature that day was about 71 degrees, but the air temperature started dropping. And by about 7.30 that night, the sun went down and I was probably six or eight miles offshore looking for an oil rig out there where I could haul out. So I had to paddle for a total of about 10 hours 
and at 2 o'clock in the morning, I reached a rig. I was able to haul out, climb up into their office, wake a couple guys up, and they helped me survive the night. Thank you very much. To pitch your own story or to learn more about all of our programs, visit the Moth website, themoth.org. That's it for this episode of the Moth Radio Hour. We hope you'll join us next time. And that's the story from the Moth. Your host this hour was Sarah Austin Janess. Sarah also directed the stories in the show. Tell us about a time your overexcitement got the best of you. I was 11 years old on the game show, Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego? Wow. Rockstar. The rest of the Moss directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Jennifer Hickson, and Meg Bowles. Production support from Jenna Weiss-Berman and Whitney Jones. And you're listening, by the way, to frequent Moth Slam host, Dan Kennedy. I'm in the lead over my fellow contestants, and we all have to wager on an amount for our choosing, of our choosing, rather, on the category New York City Geography. And that'll move us on to the final challenge. The gambler I am, I wagered everything on the question, which borough has Coney Island? Only I said Manhattan. Moth stories are true, is remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Moth events are recorded by Argo Studios in New York City, supervised by Paul Ruest. I was sure I was right and couldn't hide my excitement. like I just found a central metaphor for my life. Always got the wrong answer, always pumped. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Regina Carter, Bill Frizzell, Aramis, Felix LeBond, and Roberto Sierra. You can find links to all our music at themoth.org. The last sentence is, they had to carry me off the stage. <laughs> Oh my God. The Moth is produced for radio by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, committed to building a more just, verdant, and peaceful world. And it, and it in a decade of doing slams, has one of the most hard drawn sad faces like it looks like it was just pounded into the paper with a ballpoint pen oh that is beautiful right there the moth radio hour is presented by the public radio exchange prx.org for more about our podcast for information on pitching your own story and everything else go to our website themoth.org Moth Story Slams are back. 
Held on Mondays beginning in February, join us for our weekly Open Mic Story Slam competition. February's theme is Love Hurts. Throw your name in the hat for a chance to tell your story or just come to listen to stories of a total eclipse of the heart, kicked to the curb by the people or places or things you love or used to love. Visit themoth.org slash events to buy tickets now. That's themoth.org slash events.